you have your Bible this morning, we will be again in Titus chapter 2. So the short letter that Paul writes to his protege in the faith, Titus. And we're going to look at the second half of chapter 2. So when I was a campus minister several years ago, we had a yard sale as a fundraiser for an upcoming mission trip. And so, and feel really bad for us for this mission trip that was headed to Maui. And so to go to Maui, it is still very expensive. And so we held a yard sale where we asked area churches to donate clothes and items that we could sell uh, to fund our trip there to work with several churches. And so during the afternoon, we're sorting through all these bags and boxes of stuff. One of our girls is kind of in the corner and she is jumping up and down, squealing and shouting something incoherent. Like, what is going on with her? And so in her search through one of these bags, one of these clothes uh, bags had all these handbags in it. She pulls out this little clutch wallet purse thing. I don't know what the technical name of it is. It's one of those, but it had this little LV kind of superimposed on it. And she was freaking out because it was a Louis Vuitton. And she knew that this thing cost over $400, which is enough to pay for about two plane tickets. And one of our more skeptical students comes over to her and says, hey, let me see that. And he grabs it from her and says, no way, this thing can't be real. No one would put that in a yard sale bag. And who's going to pay that much for this little thing anyway? That's ridiculous. And so after about an hour of argument and searching the internet to figure out, is this thing real? And yes, indeed, you could sell one of these on eBay for about $400. We discovered after a debate and a vote that this was indeed a fake, but it was a very good one. It was a knockoff, a dupe, a duplicate, a counterfeit. To the untrained eye and most of the boys who could not care, even from a distance, even from a short distance, this thing looked real. And we all know the adage, appearances can be deceiving. And we were often or or close to being deceived by this little purse. And so what might look real or authentic or genuine often on the outside does not convey what truly lies beneath. So just think of clothing and style, right? And so I know most of us don't care about such things, but someone, if you see someone dressed in expensive, fashionable clothing, it gives the impression that they are of wealth or have success or of good taste. However, appearances can be deceiving, right? So that person who's decked out in all the jewels and all the jewelry and all the the glimmer and the glam may just be heavily in debt, living way beyond their means. Or they may dress in such a way that they are just trying to impress and convey their superiority to others. Or they may dress in luxury that they bought at a thrift store. I would like you to know that this polo Ralph Lauren shirt here, $7 at the unclaimed baggage outlet in Scottsboro, Alabama. Appearances can be deceiving. And so we can dress in such a way that can look on the outside like it's glamorous and glitzy, but on the inside is corrupt. And so it may be that while Gen Z had made dupes and knockoffs mainstream and trendy on social media, it doesn't take away from the fact that people are often judged by our appearances, clothing, style, online personality, talents, abilities, athletic accomplishments. Appearances can be deceiving when interacting with people, but we can give the impression of one thing, but once we get start to get close and start to inspect what's going on beneath the persona or the performance. The facades start to break down. Who we thought these people were really weren't who they were to begin with. 
And so when Paul writes to the New Testament churches, and he writes to us to live genuine, authentic lives before God and others, he says that we, when people see us as Christians, as followers of Jesus, as a church gathered together, we should live in such a way that our appearances cannot be deceiving. The way we conduct our lives must line up with, must be in keeping with the gospel. And so it's the life that what you see is what you get. And so last week we began this study about looking at a kind of a new way to live, a new humanity. And this healthy, authentic Christian life, what is it supposed to be? Well, it's shaped by theology. It's based on sound doctrine. The more we know about God, the more we know about ourselves, the more we grow into that image. And it is a life controlled by sobriety. We're self-controlled, clear-headed, rational, reasonable. We're control of our appetites, our emotions, our desires, and our actions. We're sensible and sober. We have an inner strength of character to carry out what the Bible commands. And it's also, it's a life discipled by older, more mature believers. We cannot live an obedient, self-controlled life without the encouragement of others who will come alongside us to correct and encourage and shape and mold and exhort. The church acts as a family to raise younger believers to maturity and growth in Jesus. And so read in isolation, the first 10 verses of chapter 2 of Titus can seem almost impossible to carry out. And so how can someone in their own power, in their own energy, in their own strength, live this self-controlled, sober life in such a crazy, upside-down, messed-up world? Well, Paul doesn't leave us to ourselves or our own willpower to bring about this obedient and self-controlled life. And so in the second half of chapter 2 here, Paul will give us clearly and succinctly, he will show us the basis for a genuine Christian life. And so let's turn our attention now to Titus chapter 2, verse, starting in verse 11. So Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this, "...for the grace of God has appeared." bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So Paul here will give us the basis for self-controlled living. And he starts this section with the preposition for. And he uses that little word for to connect us back to the first 10 verses of the chapter. So how can older men, older women, younger men, younger women, how can preachers and teachers live a healthy Christian life? How can we live authentically before a watching and waiting world? Well, we operate always with some certain kind of logic to answer those questions. And naturally, in our flesh, we will answer it this way. And so naturally, we are prone to this kind of logic. Here's our natural logic, and it's on the screen here. So premonition one says, do your best. God helps those who help themselves. Naturally, that's how we think, which will lead to the second point. If you do this then God will save you and bless you with eternal life. That's our natural, in our head, 
as we are born kind of logic, but that is not the gospel logic. Here's what the gospel says. This, this is on, there's, I'll give you two examples of this. This is what the gospel says. The gospel says Christ has appeared to die for your sins. It means he's shown up to die for your sins. This is what Christ has done. Therefore, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. So the gospel says that God acts and then we react. Nature says we act and God acts. Here's another picture here of the gospel. And he says this, Christ's death has become your death. His resurrection life has become your life. This is what Christ has done for you. Therefore, now you renounce your old way of living and embrace his way of living. You see the difference there? In our nature, it says that we act, then God reacts and rewards us. The gospel says, no, God acts and in his grace allows you to live in obedience, allows you to live in blessing. The Christian life is not pulling yourself up by your bootstraps or just trying harder. The Christian life says you don't have any boots on at all. There's nothing to pull up. Living that way just leads to frustration and and giving up. Paul never says to the Christian, you can do it. Just try harder. Focus your attention on yourself. It's in there somewhere. He never says that. The answer is never inside of us, Paul says. He always encourages to look outside of us to keep our eyes outward, and more importantly, upward. Specifically here in Titus chapter 2, he says, look to God's grace and to God's glory displayed in Jesus Christ. And so by focusing our attention on Christ's character, on Jesus' work, we find the foundation and the motivation to live a healthy, obedient, and victorious Christian life. So the logic of the gospel says Christ has redeemed a people, purified them, Therefore, we should live differently and live in holiness. And in most of Paul's letter, Paul will explain what God has done in creation and in Christ, and then he will give the commands. But in Titus, the order is different. The order is backwards. He will give the commands of how you live and then give us the reasons why. So the order is backwards, but the logic is still the same. From beginning to end, the Christian life is not just do better, do harder, work faster, do things to appease God. No, it is God has come to work and to save. God has given us a foundation and spiritual resources to live this life. The logic of the Christian obedience is found in these verses. We can live and obey the commands of Christ and live an authentic, godly life because Jesus has already made us healthy and godly in his sight. And so let's focus now on how Paul builds that foundation and gives us that motivation to live these godly lives here and now. And he does this by calling our attention to three different appearances, one in the past, one in the future, and one in the present. So first, let's look at our foundation. Let's look to past grace. The first appearance here is one of grace. Look in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, meaning it has shown up. And God's grace is the unearned and beneficial activity of, of God towards sinful and wayward people. Grace is based solely on God's mercy and his love, not because we did something good, not because we're cute, not because we are talented. No, it's all by God's grace to sinners who are wasting away and dead in prison. It is God's grace that has brought us into the kingdom of light. And this grace that appears is not just some amorphous power or a force. 
It's embodied in a person. If you were living in Paul's day, and if you were to go to a play, if you were to go out to watch a show, often the hero of the story is backed into a corner, and they're trapped in some seemingly impossible situation with no way to escape. And just as the, the monster or the, something's going to terrify and kill the, the hero, suddenly one of the gods of the Greek pantheon appears. He appears either from the sky, lowered by a crane, or he emerges from a trapdoor in the stage. It's a sudden appearance of the god that saves the hero at the last moment. And so we call this device in storytelling the deus ex machina. Literally, God from the machine. You've probably heard that phrase before. It's where a seemingly impossible uh, situation or an unsolvable problem in a story is suddenly fixed. It's abruptly resolved. Something or someone has shown up and made everything right. We see this in our stories even today. It's Harry Potter pulling the sword out of the hat to kill the basilisk in the chamber. It's uh, Indiana Jones and his female companion who's tied up, who are about to die, until the Nazis open the Ark of the Covenant and kill all the Nazis, and they're saved. It's the eagles arriving to carry Sam and Frodo away from Mount Doom. Something shows up in a moment. It appears to deliver salvation. This is the word that Paul is using. It's the appearing of the God and goddess who unexpectedly and suddenly arrives on the scene to save the hero of the play. But Paul is saying this is the real God in the machine. And it's not a machine, it's creation. God has always been at work, Paul says. And then suddenly, at the right time, at the fullness of time, when the people are at their lowest, at their weakest, God shows up in the person of Jesus. And it's interesting, in the Anglican tradition, they read this portion of Titus on Christmas Day. When Jesus shows up, he appears on the scene in history. And Luke, in his birth narrative, will metaphorically use this word to describe the incarnation of Jesus as the dawning of a new day. To those who sit in darkness, to those who are in prison, to those who are dead, Jesus shows up. He appears as the sun coming over the horizon. The grace of God is manifested in Christ in such a way that brings light and life to those who are in prison, in darkness of sin, and enslaved to Satan. The appearing here happens in history. It's not a fable. It's not a story. Jesus lives and walks on the earth. He appears to people before and after his death. We can trust the gospel's portrayal of Jesus. His appearance was not deceptive. He shows us a new way to live. He shows us God the Father. And it's interesting here that Paul sums up the appearance of Jesus in one word. Grace. The good news of the gospel about Jesus' life and his work is a declaration of God's unmerited favor towards people who do not deserve it. God's grace is unearned. It's not deserved. But it's only because God loves us and gave himself for us. Turn your attention to verse 14. Looking at this ultimate grace, Paul says this, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. The ultimate sacrifice here, Jesus dies in our place, taking our punishment that we deserved. He gives himself freely out of his love, out of joy, and out of mercy. His death benefits us to bring us back into fellowship with him, giving us new life in him. That is ultimate grace. But the work on the cross is not an end in itself. 
As we keep reading this uh, verse here, notice uh, the fourfold purpose of salvation, the fourfold purpose of his sacrifice. Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. He's come to redeem, to buy back, to ransom, to make a new humanity. So he's given himself to redeem us, number one. Number two, he's come to purify us, to make a people who are holy, to cleanse them from all unrighteousness. He's basically giving a new humanity a new way to live. And then he redeems and he purifies for himself a people of his own possession. God is giving himself a gift as a people. We are his treasured possession. We have a new identity and we are for his glory. And then not only are we for his own possession, we are to be zealous for good works. We are to display the character and work to a watching world. We have a new purpose. And so the new humanity here has a new identity with a new way of living to carry out a new purpose, to bring glory to God in how we behave and to do good to others. This is the basis of Christian living. Christ gave himself for us. And notice that this grace and this sacrifice What Jesus does is for all people. It's not reserved for a certain segment of society, a particular class or specific type of person. Now, Paul says in verse 11 here, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people. This does not mean that all individual people will be saved. The Bible does not give this universal ideal that everyone everywhere at all times will be saved. But the word all here does not mean every individual. It means all types of individuals. All types of people can be and will be saved. Just looking back at the first 10 verses here, all genders, male, female, all ages, older, younger, all ethnicities, Greek, Jew, barbarian, Scythian, American, Jamaican, Russian, Ukrainian, all peoples. And all classes of people, slave, free, bondservant, or master, rich, or poor. The salvation has come for all of us. And that salvation of Christ is applicable and available to all types of people in the world. Not just those who look like us, who talk like us, who eat the same foods as us, who dress in the same way as us. The grace has appeared to all. Just driving in this morning, I think about the grace of God to the homeless people who I pass to the guy this week who's tailgating me in his Ferrari, passing those same homeless people, to those people who vote for a different political party or stand for different social issues. The grace has come to my neighbor who's ambivalent and antagonistic to religion. The grace has come to you, Pharisee, who are sitting there critiquing everything that we do. The grace has come to the woman in India who's still worshiping her ancestors, The grace of God has come to the transgender teenager who still struggles with their desires and feelings. The grace has appeared to you, to me, to us today in history. God has shown up and given us grace. It's appeared, so lift our eyes. Let's lift our heads and lift our voices and look to the dawn of the coming light of grace that is found in Jesus Christ. Believe and rise from your imprisonment. The light of grace of God has dawned upon you, giving you new life, a new identity, a new worth, and a new purpose. The grace has come for you. 
So the Christian life here is founded. Its foundation is in the first appearance of Jesus. Looking back, we see God's grace. But Paul doesn't leave us there. He points us forward to what God will do in the future. So first we look back to past grace, and then we look forward. We long for future glory. So the first appearance of Christ was filled with grace. The second appearance is filled with glory. This in verse 13. So the grace of God has shown up to train us and to live, in verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the word waiting here is fraught with expectation. This is an edge of your sheet edge of your seat, delirious, can't stop thinking about it, wonder what's going to happen next, waiting. It's not the twiddling your thumbs, biding your time, looking at my phone at a bus stop kind of waiting. I don't know if you've ever made the mistake of telling your young children that you're going on a trip. I don't recommend it until the day or hour of, but when we were going to travel to see my in-laws at Christmas, we told our daughter that we were going to go see um, our her grandparents at Christmas, and every morning, after every nap time, every couple hours, is it time for our trip yet? You, you probably know that, right? And so take it from me, don't tell your children you're going to take a trip, because they're going to be waiting, eagerly anticipating, is it now? Is it now? Is it now? Because they have no concept of time. But this is the expectation that Paul wants us to have as Christians. Is he coming yet? Is he here now? Can we await now? Can we keep going? Is he going to show up? The scriptures are filled with waiting. I read Psalm 130 um, to start our service, and here's what the psalmist says. I will wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. Hope and waiting go together. My soul waits for the Lord, he says, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. He goes on and says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. Wait for the Lord, and with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel. See the hopefulness there? He will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. And so in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, the prophets were often crying out for God to act because they were waiting for God to come to save them from their sin and from their situation. They longed for rescue and deliverance. If you look at the book of Luke, the book of Luke is filled with waiting. Simeon is waiting in the temple. Anna is waiting in the temple. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea, who buries the body of Christ, is waiting for the kingdom of God. And so with these hopeful expectations that these people have in the Old Testament, they see the kingdom being inaugurated. The kingdom has come. It's been revealed by Jesus. He's brought the kingdom to this earth. But this kingdom is not fully established yet. It's not fully at work in the world. The promise that we anticipate is a return of the king to establish his kingdom forever. It is the kingdom that we continue to wait for. And Paul and other passages, especially in Thessalonians, he makes waiting a key component of the Christian's life and practice. That we are awaiting, expecting people. Not a sit around, stare at our phones, stare at the floor, just kind of hoping he's going to get here. No, it's an active, eager waiting. And so in the New Testament, we'll often talk about the appearance of Jesus as his return, his coming, or his revelation. And in all these instances, it's an anticipation of glory, a display of awe, majesty, beauty, power, and might. 
This is the coming of the Lord, powerful and majestic, riding a white horse who will come to judge and to save, condemn, and restore. And so the king returns to reclaim his throne once and for all, to defeat all of his enemies victorious and reign over his subjects forever. This is our blessed hope, as Paul calls it here. It's something that we look forward to, that we will be blessed with, to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus forever and ever. And not just to behold the glory, but to be transformed by that glory. We will share in that glory. Here's two instances that Paul speaks of, or one instance that Paul speaks of this and one that John points it out. So in 2 Corinthians 3, talking about the glory of God that will come, he says this, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory into another. So the people of God are being transformed. As we behold the glory of Jesus, we're being made more like him. And then one day we will see him face to face. And then the apostle John will say this in his first epistle. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And so notice that John says, The grace has appeared. You are God's children now, but there is glory to come. And not just the glory of God, but we behold that glory, and we become like that glory. This is what we are eagerly anticipating. This is what we are enduring for, the future glory. Just as the grace of God has appeared, so shall the glory of God one day appear. This is not just wishful thinking. From the time of Peter, Paul, and John, there have been critics who says, Ah, Jesus is not coming back. It's all just a fairy tale. It's just a myth. It's just a wish dream. Even this week, I read a quote from the bodybuilder slash politician slash theologian Arnold Schwarzenegger. And he says, heaven is a fantasy. Heaven is a fantasy. Anyone who tells you differently is a liar. That is the going mantra of this world. This is all we have. There's nothing to look forward to. But part of being a Christian, a main part of being a Christian is knowing that we have a blessed hope to look forward to. Something to wait for, to long for, to prepare for, to eagerly expect, to usher in. This is not an opiate or an opinion. It's not a wish dream. It is reality. It's just not something that kind of just flickers as a mirage on the horizon. This is something that we can put our faith in because we know that one day Jesus will appear in glory on the eastern horizon and we will be taken up with him. And so as a Christian, are we looking forward to that day? What causes us to endure, to keep going? Well, friends, we are one day closer to beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus. I love how Paul puts it in his letter to Timothy along the same lines. This, we're talking about the same subjects. He says this as kind of just this aside. He gives this benediction. He goes, He who is blessed forever, the only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has seen or ever seen, to him be honor and eternal dominion, forever. Amen. That is what we're hoping for. That is what we're longing for. That's what we look for. But we aren't there yet. And so we have seen this appearance of grace come with Jesus as he appears on the scene in the first century. We look forward to the glory that will appear, but what do we do in these in-between times? What do we do now? Well, Paul gives us the instruction to live with present godliness. 
We live with present godliness. So we are in the middle of the story, so to speak, right? We know what's come before. We know what's going ahead. In verse verse 12, Paul will say that we live in the present age. In Galatians, he says it's the present evil age. I don't think we have to do much convincing to ourselves to know that we live in an evil age. And Christians always have. It's not any better, it's not any worse than it always has been. It's always been wicked. It's always been evil. But how do we live in the middle of it? Well, Paul says to live with present godliness. How we live in the middle is determined on what's come before and where we are going. So how do we live in such a society? What's well, by the work of grace in our lives that we live in such a way that reflects who God is. And so when we're saved by grace, we are not left to live for ourselves in any old way we choose. Well, God saved me. I can live however I want to. I'm free to do whatever I want. Everything is good. Everything is beneficial. I can do whatever I want. That is not the concept of the New Testament. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But that is a faith that does not stand alone. A certain way of living, a walk through life, is obedience and dedication to the commands of Jesus. Obedience is required and necessary for the Christian. We looked at that all through the Gospel of John. In the 1930s, in 1930s Germany, the Nazi party was on the rise, and Diedrich Bonhoeffer was a leading theologian and pastor there. And he saw the church start to drift into the world standard of living. They weren't going to follow Christ in obedience, and so they just says, yes, I've prayed the prayer, I walked an aisle, I checked the box, yes, I believe in Jesus, but it doesn't matter how I live here, I know I'm going to heaven one day, so all this stuff in the middle is just kind of a wash. But Bonhoeffer says, no, that's not real salvation, that's not real grace, that's cheap grace, as he called it. And here's the, the quote from his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he says this, this is what we mean by cheap grace. The grace that amounts to the justification of sin without the justification of the repentant sinner who departs from sin and from whom sin departs. Cheap grace is not the kind of forgiveness of sin which frees us from the toils of sin. Cheap grace is what we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, and absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, living and incarnate. So cheap grace is not saving grace at all. Because when, a Christ, when Christ calls a man, he calls a man or woman to come and die. To say no to sin and yes to righteousness. Cheap grace does not, uh, it doesn't cause us to forsake sin. It allows us to live at home in this world. Cheap grace must be replaced by costly grace, as he says. A grace that cost Jesus his life and cost us ours. Here's how Bonhoeffer talks about costly grace. He says, Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. So costly grace gives us the provision of Christ's righteousness. 
his redemption, his forgiveness, his justification and sanctification. But it's costly because it costs us our life. Jesus calls us to come and die. How we live, how we conduct ourselves in the present evil age matters because it proves to others and to us where we are going. So when Paul refers to the coming of Jesus, he often couples it with these exhortations to live properly because we know that one day we will be pure and perfect just as he is. Therefore, because we know what we will be like, Paul says live like that right now. Start to mimic what you will become. In light of Jesus' return, we should live like he is already here because he is. Not physically, but spiritually. So we live with costly grace. It costs us something to achieve what we can never earn. The sound doctrine that Paul gives in this passage, the appearance of grace and the coming of glory leads to a life of discipleship. Following Christ as his his disciple is a pattern of life, our attitude, our disposition of how we follow after Jesus. And so this attitude and disposition of obedience is twofold. It has two parts, death to sin, life to Christ. Meaning we look at some things negatively, don't do that. We look at some things positively, do this. Living a holier, gospel-worthy life adopts both of those things, and both of them have to be in our uh, repertoire. Look at verse 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared. So that's the foundation again. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And here's what it does for us and in us. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So he lays this foundation of grace. This grace is not a cheap forgiveness without sacrifice. Grace teaches us to say no to things and yes to things. We have a positive and a negative. First, the negative. He says we are to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. This is saying no to the things of the world, the things that detract from God's character, the things that stem or lead to sin. We say no to those things. We renounce them. We abandon them. We reject them. Then also positive. So we kill those things, but we also bring some things to life. Positive, living, self-controlled, godly, and upright lives. Three virtues he points out here. Self-control. We looked at that a lot last week. How we control ourselves and our functions. Our passions, our desires, our emotions don't rule us. The gospel does. With respect to others, we are to be upright, meaning just or fair or right or reputable. And then godly, to respect God. With respect to God, we mimic and imitate Jesus' way of living, the righteous way of life. So this is the, the old song, the cross before me and the world behind. I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. So this twofold, we turn away from the world and to Christ. Both of those elements must be in our Christian walk. We are to put away ungodliness and worldly passions, worldly lust, put on self-control, put on sobriety, put on righteousness. Both actions are necessary. And in many places, Paul will talk about this, about putting on and putting off clothing. And so Paul points out a lot about clothing. And so he says that we are naturally dressed in such a way. This lovely, wicked, sinful, nasty, this thing still stinks too. It's torn, it's got holes in it. This is our fleshly, filthy rags that we come into the world with. We are born in sin, right? 
so filled with malice and envy and immorality, lying and cheating and stealing. But Paul says this is who we are. But when Christ comes, his grace comes, he removes this and gives us his clothing. And so Paul says positionally we have taken off this ugly mess of a robe and put on a glorious garment. But in our practical lives, we have to physically every day, if not every hour, take off the old and throw it away. And we can burn that later. And then Christ comes and he gives us his righteousness, right? So he gives us something that, that's nice and clean and fitting. This is a jacket worthy of getting married in, which I did almost seven years ago. And praise God, it still fits. This is what Christ does for us. He gives us his righteousness. And throughout the New Testament, Paul says, take off the old, burn it, get rid of it, don't go back to it. Live in his righteousness, something that's worthy, that has value. Put on love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and gentleness and kindness and faithfulness and self-control. We're clothed in his holiness, his purity. We're created after the image of God, so live like it. Every day, take off the old, put on the new. And this holy living is an example to others. It imitates the holy one above us as it opposes the unholy ones around us. So Paul is saying live with the grace that has come, the future glory that is coming. Live like it right now. You're in the middle of the story. Live faithful, godly, upright, self-controlled, loving lives. This is what Christ has called us to. So I'm not sure if we ever sold that fake Louis Vuitton wallet. I don't know if one of my students just kind of ran off with it and keeps it to this day, just kind of flouting, ooh, look at my Louis Vuitton purse. But I do remember that the excitement over that thing died out once we determined it was a fake. Why? Because it wasn't real. It cost 40 bucks, not 400. And so if someone were to come and start inspecting our lives, what would they find when they remove the outward appearance, will they find wretchedness or wickedness? Will they find the real deal? More importantly, at the end of our lives, when God comes to evaluate us, will he come and say, well done, good and faithful servant? Or will he say, depart from me, for I never knew you? The grace of God has come to give us righteousness and new life. All you've got to do is believe it. The genuine Christian life is not pretending to be what we are not. It is living out what we already are. We live out who we are. Our progression and sanctification on the way to glorification is lived out by faith in the grace of what he has done and the glory that he will one day bring back to us. He has redeemed and purified us. He will glorify us. So now live like it today. Christian, live out of the grace that Jesus has brought when he appeared Look forward to the glory that he will come again. This is not our effort. This is the power of the Holy Spirit residing in us. The grace is yours. The glory will be yours. It's not a deceptive apparition. It is reality. Now go out and live who you really are. Let's pray.